All right, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. So I turn on my notes, I'll give you some time to find your place. All right. Well, I feel like it's been a long time since I've been up here teaching you from the Bible. We've had a, a wonderful cast of teachers to continue the story forward as we go through the Gospel of Matthew together. I hope you had a good spring break. I was in Wake Forest, North Carolina, uh, attending school at Southeastern Seminary, and it was very hard and very brutal, and my brain hurt all day, every day. So I hope that your spring break was a little more relaxing, a little bit more of a break, um, but I'm glad that we're all back. I'm glad that we're kind of another week of school, back into the rhythm of things. Um, and I just want to say up front to, to Jordan and to Riley and to Seth and to Levi, thank you for teaching. And if you see them, uh, thank them for, for teaching us God's Word. It's been a huge blessing. Uh, I've got to listen to a bunch of their stuff uh, over the last couple of days, and it's been, been really, really good. Today, you should be in Matthew chapter 24, and just kind of to, to a little bit of a, a spoiler alert, warning you off ahead of time, we're going to start thinking through one of the most notoriously difficult passages in the New Testament. So Matthew 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. Now, if you were to kind of uh, try to map out the story that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find five big discourses or uh, teaching sections where Jesus is teaching his disciples. And the fifth discourse is the one that we're about to enter into. It's the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has moved from the temple in Jerusalem east. So this way for me, this way for you. Uh, he's moved east out of the temple in Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley and onto the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is an important uh, uh, piece of land there next to Jerusalem. And it's there on the Mount of Olives that Jesus will give the next two chapters worth of teaching. And that's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. But the Olivet Discourse is what happens right before the passion narrative or the story of Jesus' arrest, his trial, his flogging, and his crucifixion. So Jesus is going to, in the Olivet Discourse, try to answer an entangled set of questions from his disciples. But that whole question and answer is kind of couched in a very important context that I want us to try to get this morning. And we're going to overhear their conversation. And it presents us with something that I think is a very good opportunity for all of us, uh, which is this. When we read the Bible, we read of 66 books inspired by God, written by numerous human authors over centuries of time in various contexts, different cultures, different languages. But we read this book like Christians. <laughs> and, and God has given us this book for a very specific reason. Now, that reason is not for us to uh, grow in arrogance. That reason is not for us to be able to impress other people with the amount of facts that we know from this book. The point of Scripture is for us to meet and know and love God. So when we read the Bible as Christians, we read these stories, these true historical events, these true teachings from Jesus or from prophets or from apostles, and we're asking ourselves the question, 
what's going on, which is vital, important, paramount, that's the foundational thing that we have to do, but we're also asking the question, what does this mean for me as a Christian? How do I apply this truth to my life as a Christian? And here's why that question is important, because today the bulk of what we're going to read about is Jesus describing what's going to happen right before and during the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. So if all we're doing is reading the Bible and trying to figure out the facts, and the fact is that these teachings, these warnings, these signs have to do with a historical event that happened over 1,900 years ago, then it'll be easy for us to think, well, there's not really a lot of application for me because this event has already happened. This thing has already taken place. God's word has spoken. Yes, it does speak to these historical events, but God's word still speaks. When we read God's word, we're hearing God speak, and we must remember that when we read and study the scriptures, it comes to bear on us right now, and it confronts us. It confronts our sinfulness. It confronts our hopelessness. It confronts our brokenness. And it leads us to know God, to see Him for who He is. It points us to Jesus Christ. And it fills us with gospel hope. So as we read about a very thorny, very difficult, kind of weird passage, keep those things in mind. Okay, let's read starting in verse 1 of Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, open our eyes, focus our thoughts, bring us to attention as we read and behold your word. Because in your word, we meet you. We see you for who you are. We we are reminded once again of the miracle of the incarnation, that God the Son took on flesh to dwell among sinful people, that you took up residence, you tabernacled among us so that we might become sons and daughters of God. And Lord, I pray that as we think through the 
prophetic teachings of Jesus here in the Word, that you would open our eyes to see what was meant and what it means and how we might live in light of the hope of the gospel. That that hope of the gospel might calm us from worry and anxiety when we look at the things of this world and also fill us with great urgency as we remember that you are coming soon. We pray that you would help us, help me to teach with clarity, help us all to listen attentively and to be alert to the still small voice of your spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, the first section is going to be these first 14 verses, and I've called it the signs of the end. Uh, But it's a little bit of a play on words, okay? So last week, you heard Levi very wonderfully give you the principles in Matthew 23 behind why Jesus would pronounce seven woes or or these kind of um, warnings of sorrow and distress. And the principles were that the the, prof, the, the pro, not the prophets, the Pharisees were, were teaching the word, but they were practicing something else, right? They were practicing not gospel, godly righteousness. They were practicing some kind of idolatry, self-righteousness. And at the very end, we didn't have time. I gave Levi a lot more than he had time to cover, and that's, that's on me. Uh, but at the very end of Matthew 23, just turn your eyes up, maybe just one paragraph. Look at verse 37. This is how Jesus ends his seven woes. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you might have a little uh, footnote or a little letter in your Bible right before the word blessed. If you look down at that footnote, you can see that Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to Psalm 118 at the end. But the point is that Jesus is saying, because of their rejection of God, the house of Israel will be left desolate, destroyed. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, will not be seen again until there is this new proclamation of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in verse 1, we just read of Jesus leaving the temple. His disciples are pointing out the beauty of the temple, the beauty of its buildings. And Jesus uh, pronounces to them, all these things you see will be totally leveled. So, so the, chapter, the chapters, they're helpful for us as we think about reading through the Scripture in a way that doesn't overwhelm us, but sometimes it gets in the way. Those two passages are right next to each other, right? The context of this is important. So he travels east from the temple through the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. Now there's a prophet named Ezekiel who was prophesying in the Old Testament right before Israel was uh, conquered and the Babylonians sent them into exile. And we don't have time to turn there, but in Ezekiel uh, 10 and 11, he gave a prophecy that Israel's God would, right before and during uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, that his presence would leave the temple, move to the east, and rest on the mount in the east. 
So, so Ezekiel is speaking of a similar vision of God's glory leaving the temple, resting on the mountain to the east while the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, leveled. So we should notice that Matthew is cluing us into something massive here, that the age of the temple is going to be fulfilled by something else. That Jesus is taking that and running with it. And we, not, we need to listen to what Jesus is saying. So the disciples are curious, right? They privately go to him and say, um, you just talked about the whole temple being destroyed. When's that going to happen? Because I don't want to be there, right? Like, I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, caught in the destruction. When will these things be, they ask, meaning the destruction of the temple. And then they ask another question that in their minds is kind of the same question. It's, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Remember chapter 23, verse 39? I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When will be this, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples are asking Jesus a, a kind of entangled set of questions And Jesus' answer is going to disentangle them. The disciples think that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is the same as the end of the world, right? Because for Israel, it is the end of the world. Like their whole life is wrapped up in the sacrificial system that finds its core at the temple. This is the place where God dwells. It's the place where God dwells with us. And so if God's temple is destroyed, then that must mean that something cataclysmic is happening. And what will, be the, what will be the things that disciples notice before the temple is destroyed? Jesus gives them a list of signs there in the, in the text that we just read. So false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs, wars, rumors and threats of more war, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters, Followers of Jesus being hated and killed. Many who proclaim to follow him eventually will walk away from the faith, Jesus says. Others will begin to hate one another. Lawlessness will seem to increase. It seems as though the the behavior of people is getting worse and worse. Love will fizzle out from a passionate flame to a hard freeze. Jesus says their love will grow cold. All of these are signs that Jesus says the disciples will be able to see. And when they see those things, they can know the destruction of the temple is soon. It's coming. All of these signs are pointing me to that truth. But, Jesus says, another sign will be that others will endure. That some followers of Christ will continue to the end. That they will persevere. And that the gospel will continue to expand to the ends of the earth. Followers of Jesus, at the same time as all of this bad stuff going on, they will enjoy real victory as his kingdom grows. Now Jesus is talking about the signs of the coming temple being destroyed. But doesn't that sound like today? I'm like, do do we not see all of those signs as well? I mean, there's earthquakes. I mean, I don't know if you just saw, like last week, there was a a 7.3 or 7.4 earthquake off the coast of Japan, which put the whole country in a state of just terror because of what happened just about a decade ago. 
the giant tsunami. There's famines everywhere. I mean, the, the issue that's going on, the war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine has like a third of the world's wheat production in like limbo. There's wars, obviously, rumors of wars. What if this thing spills out into something more global? Don't we see Christians who at one time professed faith in Jesus falling away? I mean, like all of you probably, if you don't, I'm telling you, one of the, one of the hardest things about growing older as a follower of Jesus is the knowledge of people who you once walked alongside as you followed Jesus who are no longer walking alongside you. And we all have those stories. We, we all have stories of Christians hating one another over things that are not of utmost importance. So what is Jesus saying to us? Like what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, hey, you're going to see these things and it's going to remind you that the destruction of the temple is coming and it's coming soon. And as these things grow, the certainty of that will grow as well. But what is Jesus saying to us? The temple was destroyed 1,900 years ago and yet we still see these signs. What is he saying to us? First, you and I, as followers of Jesus, when we see the brokenness and fallenness of the world, ought not be alarmed. The history of the world, since the days of the apostles, have expressed one big idea. Verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The world is in labor. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 8, that the whole creation is groaning <clears throat> as though it has labor pains for the coming redemption, that Jesus would come to make all things right. So we should not be surprised or afraid when we see the brokenness around us. If you're a Christian following Christ in his word, being led by the Spirit, and everything around you seems to be falling apart and breaking, that, that was totally what Jesus was talking about. And his point in telling you this in 2022 is the same thing, the same point that he had when he told the disciples 2,000 years ago. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. These signs in the world are not evidence that I've lost control. These signs in the world, it's not evidence that God doesn't care about his world, that God doesn't care about his people. It says these things must happen. They must take place. It's verse 6. They must take place. So we shouldn't be alarmed. Second, we look at who Jesus says will be saved. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we press on in faithfulness to Jesus because he's preserving us day by day. And in a very real sense... The reason why this entangled set of questions feels like we're in two time periods at the same time is because in a very real sense, we are in the end times right now. When you think about the end times, you think about like all of these like prophecies being charted onto historical events and there's people who have like huge graphs and charts 
And, and what they want to do is they want to try to make sense of what God's word has said and what they see in the world. So I'm not making fun of those people. I'm just saying Jesus's point is going to be something a little different than they intend to, that they usually take. They, they think that Jesus is saying, if you know the signs, you can chart the future. Just like the disciples could have charted the destruction of Jerusalem. But flip over just one page to chapter 24, verse 36. We'll get into this next week. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But they also asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? <clears throat> so in other words, the disciples are asking, when is the destruction of the temple? When is the end of the world? And up through verse 35, I think Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. But look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So our brothers and sisters who love Jesus and love the Bible and are trying to map onto a timeline, the, the signs of the times as some kind of future event that gives us some kind of code to break that at this point, this is when Jesus is coming back. They're, they're missing what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, disciples, you can, you can chart when the destruction of the temple is coming. It's coming soon. But that day, the day of the coming of the Son of Man, no one knows. No one knows. The angels don't know. So what do we do? We press on. We remain vigilant. Even if these things seem bleak and hopeless, whether it's out in the whole world or in the closeness of your world, God's plans are moving exactly as he intended. And my hope and my prayer for you is that gives you incredible hope. And that gives you incredible peace. Because if I didn't believe that, if I didn't believe that the things of the world out there or the things of the world in here were not under God's sovereign rule, that, that, that there are things going on in the world that God's just like, oh man, I didn't see that coming. That would make me a lot more anxious <laughs> and a lot more worried about the things of my future. But if Jesus is saying all of these things must take place, None of these things has caught me by surprise. Then that can give us incredible peace and incredible motivation to endure to the end. All right, we have to keep going. Verse 15. <clears throat> so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Matthew says. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved." But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. 
So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Second big idea this morning, the desecration and the destruction. The desecration and the destruction. There is escalation going on when these signs are coming into uh, reality. And Jesus says, what you will see right before the end is the abomination of desolation. Now, we don't use that kind of language anymore, do we? Like, you don't get like a really hard test at school and you say, this is an abomination of desolation, right? This is not how we speak. But he says that the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So Daniel, again, we don't have time to turn there, but in in Daniel, there's this prophecy that Daniel gives of this one who is the abomination of desolation. And he will come and desecrate God's place. He will desecrate God's temple. He will will, uh, profane it. When I say desecrate, he, he will profane it. He will make a mockery of it. And about 200 years before Jesus was born, or not before Jesus was born, but before this, uh, before this conversation, in about 170 BC, there was a ruler in Rome named Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And Antiochus IV came into Jerusalem, and he set up an altar at the temple to Zeus. And on that altar, he offered slaughtered pigs to Zeus as a mockery of the God of Israel. In God's own house, he sets up an altar to a false god and offers unclean animal sacrifices to that false god to desecrate God's house. And Jesus says, you remember that? That's what you need to be thinking about. You remember that past event that took place 200 years ago? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about before the end comes. Before the actual destruction, there will be this desecration that takes place. Someone else is coming who will not only desecrate the temple, but utterly destroy it. And when that sign comes, Jesus says, you don't need to think, you don't need to plan, you need to flee. So in AD 70, about 40 years after this conversation, the Roman Empire besieged the city of Jerusalem. That means they surrounded it, they cut off the supply lines, They kept anyone from coming in or out. And this is what Jesus is talking about. If you don't leave, you won't leave. For five months, Rome slaughtered Israel, drove them to starvation, drove them to cannibalism, drove them to utter hopelessness for five months. Months, over a million people were slaughtered. And they came in at the end of that on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple in 586 by the Babylonians and totally destroyed the temple. The only thing remaining at the temple in Jerusalem is the Western Wall, what you can go visit today. It's known as the Wailing Wall. Now, we can have like a historical argument about what is the most devastating event in human history. 
And for a lot of us, probably the immediate thought is the Holocaust, right? Millions and millions of Jews extinguished. But I think there's a great argument that as far as the intensity and the barbarism and the condensed potency of the event, that there are few things in human history that compare to the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he's like, this is a kind of tribulation that will not be repeated. Like nothing this bad has ever happened and nothing that bad will happen again. So he's trying to get the disciples to understand that this is serious. And then he says, for the sake of the elect, the destruction will come to an end. Right? Because if it wasn't stopped, there would be no human being left. Now, remember the context of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's not as though Jesus is saying, if the siege in Jerusalem wasn't stopped, then every human being on the planet would die. No, there were survivors in Jerusalem. There were those who were survivors who were either sold into servitude or slavery. They were made to fight in the gladiatorial games. But they survived. What Jesus is saying is, if it didn't stop short, there wouldn't have been any humans left. So who are the elect? Who are the chosen ones in this passage? It's unclear. Just be honest. It's unclear. Is Jesus speaking about the Jews who will mourn in verse 30? We'll get to that in a minute. Is he talking about a group of followers of Jesus who decided to remain in Jerusalem? We have great historical record of followers of Jesus in times of great trouble and distress. Think about plagues, conquering of other armies other nations, that the Christians would, all, would often decide to stay, not leave, to be faithful ministers, to be uh, helpers, servants to those who were in need. We don't know. All we know is that some Jews survived. But notice, false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs will again pop up and seek to lead the people astray, claiming to have knowledge of the Christ or a secret way to find him. Look at verse 27. Jesus breaks in to tell the disciples and us, remember, I'm not talking about the end. I'm talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem is something that will happen, that you can plan for, that you know because of these signs is coming soon. But the coming of the Son of Man, you won't need someone to tell you about it. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You will not need to be helped. No one will have to point this out to you. When the Son of Man comes, everyone will see. It's when he says in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. Right? Like you don't see vultures normally, but man, if there's a carcass around, you look up at the sky, and especially like out where I'm from in Elmore County, man, it's like... It seems like there's hundreds of them that have come from nowhere and they're like, man, I smell a dead body. Right? Like they don't need to be helped. They know. And in the same way, when the Son of Man comes, we will know. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the unbelievable difficulty that awaits Jerusalem. Their judgment is sure, but it is not the same. It's not the same time as Jesus' return. The destruction of Jerusalem actually serves as a sign that Christ will come back. But the sign and the thing that gets signified is entangled here. So what is, it for, what is there for us? 
How do we read this passage like a Christian? Jesus is trying to teach his disciples of the upcoming persecution and destruction, and his spirit continues to speak to us even now, pointing us to the Lord. We have to ask ourselves the same question that we asked in the previous passage. Don't we see this kind of desecration now? Like, Don't we see the, the mockery of Christians and the Christian God? Don't we see this kind of desecration of God's people and God's church all around the world, not just in our culture? Like, isn't that just the reality of the world for so many people? That Christians are destroyed because they're hated? And maybe not destroyed physically, but like in our culture, destroyed professionally? Like you, you come out in public as a committed follower of Jesus Christ who believes that the Bible is the word of God, who really believes that a human being 2,000 years ago died on a cross, three days later rose from the dead, and before he died on the cross, called it. Like this is what's going to happen. And then he floated into heaven and promised that he would come back on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. You're like, you believe that? Like, yeah. Like, we believe weird stuff. Like your commitment to that will lead to mockery. It will lead to desecration. It will lead to, for some of us, and for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, destruction. And on these false teachers, are we not tempted to follow after false teachers who overpromise a life of joy and freedom and prosperity, but underdeliver? And and we may not see them as those things because they have a really pretty Instagram page. Or like a really influential like TikTok. Like, we don't think in our brain that, like, oh, that's a false teacher. Like, that's a false prophet. They're telling me, if I just believe what they're selling, that my life will be full and abundant and joyful. They're not using the word, follow me and I'll lead you to Christ, but that's what they're telling you. We must be alert. We must remember the gospel as we've learned it from God's word. And if we do, we can have hope because there's nothing that can finally lead those whom God has chosen to escape the grasp of his covenant love. For the sake of the elect, these things will come to an end. Second, and this is massive for us as young people, we think that the signs of the times mean that there is more time yet. Remember our friends with the big chart and graphs? We read stuff like this and we think, wow, that must be like future events that's going to happen way in the future, like long after I'm gone. And like maybe my kids or my grandkids or my great, great, great grandkids are going to have to deal with those problems. But me, not a problem. And not only that, we think, well, I don't really have to worry about this seriousness of following Jesus thing right now because I'm a teenager and I've got my whole life ahead of me and I've got all this time in the world. There is no Preview for lightning. Like it just happens. And the reality is, we believe that we don't need to be concerned with pursuing holiness or dying to ourselves or growing in our knowledge and our love for God because we think we have time to put it off. 
But Jesus' return in a very real way is not like the destruction of the temple. It's not like we're going to be able to discern with a a kind of margin of error how much time we've got. No, his return will be like a flash of lightning. It's imminent. He could come at any moment to judge the living and the dead. And notice, for those of us who are following Jesus, who like long to know God, who long to love his word and to treasure it as much more valuable than gold for us, the the idea that Jesus' return is imminent is an incredibly amazing idea. Because we're we're aware of the brokenness of the world and we're aware that the the world is something that we might give up in in a moment's notice for the sake of knowing Christ and for his return to come. But for those of us who are not following Christ, the imminent return of Jesus should strike fear in your heart. Because you're living your life on borrowed time. We must be ready. Okay, gosh, we're going far. Who'd have thought Me going late. Let's go. Uh, Verse 29. Hardest part. Here we go. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That seems important. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to another. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Final section this morning, the sign of the sun. The sign of the sun. Verses 29 to 31 is probably one of the most thorny paragraphs in the whole Bible. So, obviously something that we're going to do in overtime today. Uh, Some believe that in that passage of the the stars not giving their light anymore and the sun being darkened and the powers of heaven being shaken. Some believe (coughs) that Jesus is talking about his own return. That's what he was talking about in verses 27 and 28. That's what they think he's talking about in 29 and following. So they're thinking about the end end, like the very end. Others maintain that he's still primarily talking about the destruction of the temple. Either way... The main point for us is the same. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be vindicated. He'll be proven as right and true, as exactly who he said he was. And the signs of the end point to the sign of the Son. And so if we read these signs around us, we can be convinced that the Son is faithful and true. We read verse 29, these descriptions of cosmic disturbance. It's like all creation is faltering before what's taking place. This language, however, is a repetition. It's a repetition. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, this is starting in verse 
10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. You hear that language? The sun is not going to be bright. It's going to be dark. The stars are going to not give their light. The moon will not shed its light. What is Isaiah talking about in Isaiah 13? He's talking about the fall of Babylon. He's not talking about the destruction of the world. He's talking about the fall of Babylon. So what does Isaiah have to do with Jesus? The destruction in Isaiah 13 sounds cosmic. It sounds like all the universe, but it's actually talking about a very specific nation. Babylon is the ancient foe of the people of God who used idol worship and syncretism. Right? If you're with us in equipping groups on Wednesday night, you've heard this in the book of Ezra. The way the Babylonians were trying to get the Israelites to stop being the people of God is they wanted to mix their religions together and say, oh yeah, you can worship your God, but you worship your God as a citizen of our kingdom so his God will give us blessings as well. They wanted to mix these religions together. They wanted to use syncretism, idol worship, to lead God's people away from the truth. And here's the Here's the big point that Jesus is making. This is what the temple had become. This is what the temple had become. A place of idol worship. A place of syncretism. Of false religion mingling in with what is real. Next, we read in verse 30 that the sign of the Son of Man will cause the tribes of the earth to mourn. That word earth, a little... I am not a Bible scholar. I am not a translation scholar. But the word for earth there is the word gase, which also means land. Now, if you go read the Old Testament and you read about the tribes of the land, you're reading about the tribes of Israel. And so I think here in verse 30 that the tribes of Israel are mourning here. When they see the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, why? Because they'll be reminded of the vision of the sign of the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is what Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 7. But he's not talking about Jesus. He's not talking about the Son of Man coming from heaven to earth to make all things right. No, Daniel chapter 7 is talking about one like a Son of Man ascending into heaven to receive that power and glory. I know this is a lot, so track with me here. I think this passage is saying that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is going to cause Israel to remember back 40 years before about this man from Jerusalem, this man from Nazareth named Jesus, who the Christians have been saying to us for a whole generation, he rose and ascended on high, and he now has power in heaven from God alone and has all authority in heaven on earth. And the destruction of the temple is going to cause them to mourn because they will realize we've missed it. We've missed it. The resurrection and ascension of Christ is proved as trustworthy when the words that we're reading right now come to pass in AD 70. In verse 31, he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. He'll gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. 
There's that word elect or chosen ones. And if the temple is still in view, he perhaps is talking about the gathering and the preservation of those who were under the threat of destruction from Rome's persecution. That God will see fit to preserve that remnant of people from the utter destruction that's taking place in Jerusalem. Jesus ends this section with an illustration from a fig tree. When the signs of life appear on the fig tree, you can be sure that summer is coming soon. And in the same way, these things that he said will come to pass. In fact, he says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And that's exactly what happened. About 40 years later, many of the people still alive in the time of Jesus, still alive in AD 70, and they witnessed the fall of Jerusalem. They witnessed the destruction of the temple. So what do we do with this? As Christians far removed from the destruction of the temple, where does this passage fit for us? Flip over with me. This is where we'll kind of start to land the plane. In Acts chapter 2. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The birth of the church. The people of God who will take this gospel to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 2. Or start in verse 16, rather. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, so far so good. Spirit pouring out. Men and women proclaiming the word of God, visions, dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants, verse 18, in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Wonderful. We got it so far. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's Peter doing? Peter is carrying that cosmic language from the prophets and saying something massive is happening. This is us, students. We are the ones whom the Spirit has been poured out on. We are the ones who live in a world filled with the signs of the end. We are the ones that, that are awaiting an, a day of the Lord where He will come to make all things right. We've been given the opportunity to tell others that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one with all power, all glory. He is the one saving sinners even now from the greater destruction that will come at His return. That temple that was destroyed in AD 70 had already been rebuilt because the temple is us. This is what Paul says in Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that the Spirit of God lives in you? We are God's temple. We are the one who declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This place of sacrifice through death was destroyed. And now a people of God gather as living sacrifices. 
praising the Lord who saved them, who chose them, who promises to remain faithful to them forever. In fact, I said that we would come back to Psalm 118. So let's just do that for a minute. If you want to flip there, Psalm 118, this is where we'll actually just land the plane and give you just a couple of minutes to debrief. I mentioned to you that Jesus starts this whole section with this quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this psalm is amazing. We won't have time to read all of it, but I want to read a couple of verses. Start in verse 19. I mean, think about all that we've just heard, that Jesus is proclaiming that the temple will be destroyed and mingled in all of that are these signs of his return, of his coming. Verse 19 of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns on the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Students, this is us. And my prayer for us, is that we would feel the incredible hope that we have in Christ, who has made us living stones and built us up into a spiritual house. That we would look around the world and see the brokenness and not be alarmed, because these are the things that must take place. That God is still in control, He's still ruling, He's still reigning. The Son of Man has been vindicated over and over and over again as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that as we live in these last days, we who have had the Spirit poured out on us might go, might share, might live in light of the glory of God because His coming is soon. It's imminent. It's like a flash of lightning. One day it will be too late. But if we're still here, there's still time. Let me pray for us.